0: This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating
1: life-saving successes in communities of all sizes.
0: Hello and welcome. This is the Best Friends Podcast. Today is January the 28th. My name is John Dunn. Now, I haven't been in animal welfare for that long. I joined Best Friends as a paid staff member in 2007, but even in that time period, things have changed a lot. Our perspectives have changed. The knowledge in so many areas is vastly different. In some cases, today's best practice would be unthinkable even a few years ago. Pitbull Terrier-type dogs, for example. The belief that these dogs were inherently dangerous. That any dog involved in a fighting case couldn't be saved. Whether the dog had a known history of fighting or not, not savable. Not even an evaluation. That's hard to imagine, right? Well, that was the predominant belief 10-12 years ago. And I don't mean the public. I mean across much of animal welfare. Our beliefs on what is or isn't adoptable. That's drastically changed. Think about how much data has impacted the work. Hell, I was reminded this week that as recently as 2016, no one truly knew how many animal shelters there are in the country. Technological changes, societal changes, industry changes, but so many of these things would never have happened unless we committed to looking at things differently with an open mind. I get it. It's easier said than done, especially when something is challenging one of our core beliefs. This is something we talked about in episode 88 with David McRaney. Now, today's episode isn't about the science of belief, but I do have an evergreen request from me to you, which is to approach everything with an open mind. Be inquisitive even when it's something that really challenges what you currently believe. This isn't about forcing you to believe something, but kind, honest communication is important all the time. Today's episode, yes, it may well challenge your beliefs. Sue Cosby is the Senior Director of Life Saving Centers for Best Friends. Last week, she was featured in an editorial on the Best Friends Network website. The title of that piece, The Paradox of Adopting Out Unaltered Animals. If you have not read it, there will be a link to that editorial in the show notes of your podcast player. You can always check out the website, bestfriends.org podcast. The editorial did cause a bit of a stir, as you might imagine. And if you haven't read it, check out the website, bestfriends.org podcast. Scroll down, click the link for episode 98. Let me be very clear. Best friends support spaying and neutering animals. No one is saying we end the practice. But our current realities dictate we have to look at things differently. How can we best manage when there are 100,000 more animals in care at shelters than this same time last year? And veterinary resources are spread so thin. And that's in places where there are even resources to spread. So we should be asking hard questions as we have to prioritize what we can do with what we have. So should a policy that requires a spay or neuter surgery prior to adoption be the one thing that prevents an adoptable pet from going home, when the consequence of rigidity around the policy may mean that a perfectly wonderful adoptable dog or cat may not leave that building alive? To talk more about this and how removing this barrier to lifesaving actually might look in practice, I sat down with Sue Cosby. I want to make sure we talk about the tactical part of this. You know, if you are in a situation in your community where this is something you have to consider, what do you need to think about? You know, how should you go about it? But you've worked in shelters in your career, several different types of organizations, public, private. I have not. Uh, But I think if we were having this conversation 10 years ago, my response would probably be pretty different. You know, even uh, doing this podcast the last couple of years has really helped me to see the broader picture. You know, you start talking to all sorts of different folks across the country, different communities, different organizations, and I have really tried to be mindful about these conversations because if I can have some empathy for those folks who are in the shelter, making the decisions every day on who lives and who dies, something you've had to do in your career, You know, it's not always this binary of a choice, but it may be a choice sometimes between an animal going out the front door to a new home, but intact for some period of time until the capacity for surgeries is there or, you know, that animal going out the back door.
1: Every single step forward that we've made in animal welfare, every single one, no matter how tiny it was, came with a massive amount of backlash. It's disheartening that we have to have these conversations to the extent that we do. But I liked your idea of let's making this really practical so that it's not arguing, is it right? Is it wrong? Because I think that's a false argument. Well, for what seems like a frickin' eternity now, we've been talking about life saving
0: during a pandemic. But I think we're going to have to start facing the realities of what life is going to be going forward, which is how do we do all of this during an endemic? And what does that mean for us and the animals? We have the staffing issues. I mean, all of this, it's certainly not any less challenging to be in an endemic, obviously, as we're starting to realize. Uh, and more than ever, I think we need to be super creative to find solutions together, which if history is any guide, the animal welfare movement will certainly find ways to figure it out.
1: That's for sure. Um, and if it's any—if there's anyone who is good at challenging creativity, and being emotionally impacted by it, it's also animal welfare. And so I think that we all have to get ready for a ride ahead where um, some of the norms that we've become accustomed to are challenged. And how can we find creative ways to work around it? How can we find creative ways to help more animals, not fewer animals, to actually you know, move those animals through our institutionalized systems and into loving homes faster, uh, whether it's inside a home or with a caretaker in a community. Like we need to think of ways to reduce those animals' length of stays in our care and uh, get them in homes.
0: So much of this, if we can be respectful, be kind, it will help us a lot in these difficult conversations. You know, we don't have to agree with the vitriol sometimes, like as if this must mean that best friends and others, like we just woke up this morning and decided we needed to push animals out into the world with reckless abandon. These conversations are always so fraught with danger, I feel, if for no other reason, then I want everybody to love the podcast. Uh, you know, but you can start to cherry pick what you hear, you know, whether it's this or politics or whatever, and we all do it. I mean, it doesn't mean the best friends friends or anyone else shouldn't be challenged on this or any issue. Of course not. No one is trying to silence anyone or provide cover for bad behavior. (sighs) But I tell you, when you start with the vitriol, you really don't have anywhere to go. And we need to be able to have hard discussions with everyone at the table.
1: So there's a paradoxical situation here where if we talk about spay neuter is not as valuable as you might've thought it was, that could be very painful. Well, it's the same thing when we talked to shelter directors who spent their careers killing animals because they grew up and they were introduced into animal welfare at a time where it was very common and it wasn't considered wrong. And how, approaching someone to say, I want you to come to the realization that everything that you've done over the past 20 years is wrong. And all those lives are on your hands and nothing, you know, nothing you did actually made the right, was the right thing to do. So that sort of feeling really applies everywhere.
0: Let's talk about the nuts and bolts of this then. What is the policy of Best Friends in terms of releasing intact animals?
1: Um, So Best Friends really does believe that uh, the lives of animals that are in our care is critically important. And so we do utilize the tool of releasing animals that aren't spayed or neutered when it's appropriate. Sparingly, It doesn't happen very often. And I think that that's one of the biggest concerns that people have in opening the door up to releasing any animal unspayed and unneutered is that it's going to be an all or nothing. Is that you're all of a sudden going back to perhaps where you were in the 80s or 90s when you didn't have spayed and resources and you're just releasing every animal intact. Um, and that's by no means what um, we or anyone I know that is uh, talking about releasing animals unspayed or unneutered is, is really That's not what we mean by it. Um, We do mean that at times, especially now with the challenges that COVID has presented, getting vet appointments or even hiring vets on staff um, is really strained, is really stretched. And if you think about a shelter that is, really constantly bringing in animals because they have a community need where animals are coming in. Let's say they're providing animal control, they're providing municipal services. Maybe there is no municipal services and they're a rescue that's really serving that need for their community. Our work in saving animals' lives really gets clamped down when those veterinary resources are taken away from us. So we have to think critically about how we use this tool of spay-neuter and and when we can use the tool um, with a light touch and actually release some animals uh, out the door without being sterilized. We do this throughout all of our programs, including at the sanctuary, which is the heart and soul of kindness and caring to animals. We do that because we have animals that could be in a home, Now I wanna use the sanctuary as an example, which is a little extreme because the sanctuary is so remote, but really kind of put a handle on how we think through this process. We have incredible veterinary resources at the sanctuary, but like everywhere in the United States, we're a little short staffed now. And that has challenged our veterinary services, really stretched them. And so when someone wants to adopt an animal from the sanctuary, very often, They are making a trip from far away. It's even an hour and a half drive. I live out where the sanctuary is in Utah. It's about an hour and a half drive for me to get into what I would consider civilization, where I can go to a Target and yeah, I mean Costco maybe. Yeah, go to Costco.
0: You got to round up the wagons. You got to go buy your oats (laughs) and molasses for the next three months, right?
1: Exactly, and uh, and so if if we think of the people who are making that long drive to get to the sanctuary, to adopt that animal, to meet that animal that they fell in love with, the idea that we may not be able to get that animal spayed or neutered for a couple days, and maybe even a week or two, if schedules are really strained, that is not Allowing that animal to move on to its most productive life. It's not allowing those people to actually care for that animal in the way they want to and the way they want to love that animal. And it is for us holding on to an animal at the sanctuary where, as big as it is, our resources are limited. The space that we have to hold animals is limited. And Even the people that we have to care for them, especially now, like I said, with COVID um, is limited. So for us, we make the decision that based on each animal, it is okay to release animals that are unspayed or unneutered. We actually because of the distance where people are unlikely to be able to come back for a spay neuter appointment, we do offer to reimburse people for the cost of their surgeries. And so what we found at the sanctuary is when people do reach out to us to get their money back for their surgeries, um, very often they have questions about their pet. Um, And so we've actually discovered uh, sort of in an unintentional way that these reconnections with adopters Uh, have greater value even than just uh, verifying a spay-neuter status, but it gives us the opportunity to be a true partner with them. It says a lot about the trust in the adopter that we have that we're able to release an unspayed or unneutered animal. And I think for some organizations, having that trust in the public is challenging. I worked uh, in animal control in various roles for close to 10 years, and I completely understand how it can be hard to trust the public. When you're working in rescue, when you're working in animal control, when you're working in humane law enforcement, which I helped uh, run a humane law enforcement department as well, um, you see the worst. And it's really easy to think that everybody is the worst. The reality is that is not everybody. That even in uh, communities where you might at first glance think, I don't know how people in these communities are taking care of their animals. It can't be good. In every single one of those communities where I've worked, I found so many people who passionately loved animals. They may not have had the resources. They may not have had the accessibility to services, but they loved animals deeply. And so I had to really take off my privileged lens of having grown up in a community with the means to spay and neuter our own animals with the means to provide them good vet care and food. Um, And I had to take off that privileged lens and see that their love was just as valid.
0: That's really the crux of this, I think. And so much of what we know today about trusting the public, the vast majority of pet owners, the vast majority of people are good people. We know the pet loving public will step up to help fostering during COVID a prominent nationwide example of that. But there are folks who do this work who have reservations about removing barriers to adoption, for example, right? Letting go of things like home checks and landlord checks. So if you're not able to trust the public with some of these other things, then you can start to imagine how a conversation about adopting out intact animals might feel. You mentioned it's not every animal. It's only in certain cases. How do you follow up? I assume, you know, it's not a, hey, thanks for adopting. Uh, it'd be cool if you took care of those things dangling off the back someday, but whatever, bye, uh, right? I mean, there's support there. There's a system, right, to ensure everything is done to get that surgery completed.
1: So so there's a few strategies, and I think the strategies and how you go about this are going to be different for every community and every organization. Your resources are going to be different. Your options are going to be different, um, and uh, I think that a resource that might work in a Suburban community close to an urban center is going to be very different than some of the resources that are available, for example, out here in very rural Utah. So, the first thing is looking at what your resources are and how can you take advantage of them. And one of the first things that uh, you can do as a shelter is if your resources are that you, as the organization, ultimately can provide that surgery yourselves, then releasing an animal either with a contract that you work with an attorney to define that the ownership takes uh, place at the time of surgery, that that transfer of ownership takes place, or you might want to consider a foster to adopt contract where the animal is, um, the legal ownership is not transferred until that surgery is completed. I will say there are some downsides to that. I want to highlight those. Well, you maintain ownership, you maintain ownership for everything. So if something goes wrong, uh, let's say that you adopt out a dog and that owner um, maybe puts that dog in a situation where that dog bites someone, you actually now are still the owner of that dog. So if there is a lawsuit, if there is a concern around that animal, you are the owner. That's it. It's yours. Um, And the other thing that I think it is a false sense of security for people is that you maintain ownership of that animal. So therefore you can just go get that animal back at any time. Well, you can't do that either. Um, In some cases you'd have to, if the person won't actually give you or the owner, give you back the animal, you would probably have to involve your local police department or even the court system in order to get that animal back. Because that animal is yours, it absolutely doesn't give you license just to go into that person's home and reclaim that animal. And so it's a little bit trickier than just saying, well, it's mine, therefore I have ownership.
0: Disclaimer that nothing on this podcast should be considered legal advice. Foster to adopt, certainly liabilities, but something a lot of groups are already doing.
1: Yeah, they are already doing that. And um, they uh, the, the challenge is that it's not offering them the protection that they think it gives them in terms of reclaiming that animal back. Everyone who does fostering and everyone who does foster to adopt have had a, a few animals, even if it's just one, just the people fall off the face of the earth and they never contact you back. And when you have a foster to adopt, and that happens, you actually haven't closed the loop on that ownership. There is no contract to sign. There is no nothing. One of the ways that we've dealt with that um, at Best Friends is in our agreement when people sign up to be a foster parent for an animal, whether it's a foster or foster to adopt, is we do work into our agreement that if they don't contact us back if they just stop communicating with us. Um, if we believe that they have, you know, stolen the animal, that there's something nefarious, if we believe that that animal is is in danger, we notify them as they, you know, it's in gentle language, but we just tell them that, you know, we will consider it theft. Um, or if we believe there was no harmful intent, that if they have not contacted us, they are agreeing that we will perform we will complete an adoption on their behalf. Legally we want to make sure that um, everything's sort of buttoned down in terms of the ownership of the animals. I know that there is a lot of rescue groups out there that would want the ownership of every animal for its entire life. Um, And that does open you up to liability and responsibility for the care of the animal. So for us at Best Friends, we're trying to help as many animals as possible while also being protective of us as an organization. You know, one lawsuit could actually close an organization down. So getting back to spay and neuter, I don't see a whole lot of difference between a foster to adopt and adopting that animal and doing that follow-up in each case, You might think you have the illusion of control with the foster adopt, but unless you're ready to go involve the police and go to court, I mean, and some groups might be and feel free. Um, That's really not how we wanted to approach our relationships with the publics and the organizations that I've been in. So um, it's it's an illusion if that, that the foster adopt is giving you any more protection. But that is an option if that's what your organization feels comfortable with to be able to bring those animals back in. You also may want to consider things like vouchers. If your organization just doesn't have the resources, it can be vouchers, it can be actually taking a deposit. Now you wanna check with your attorney most likely Um, on whether or not taking a spay neuter deposit is acceptable and legal in your state and your municipality and what you have to do with those funds. Um, In some cases, those funds have to be held separately and you have to have a legal mechanism in order to use them for anything else. You can't just use them for your program. Um, And so I think there also may be a lot of organizations out there that are taking a deposit, but maybe they haven't quite looked into what the requirements are and the laws around taking that department. And you want to be really careful that you're actually following the law when you do that.
0: Well, this is going to be hard to answer, Sue, I know, uh, maybe impossible, but you mentioned it's not every animal, every situation is different. Is there anything you can do to help me understand, I I don't know, for lack of a better term, the decision tree, in terms of which animal or which adopter, like, how do you know the cases where it's more appropriate? I would say it sticks out to me, this idea that we would be judging Adopters, based on who we think is likely to come back later for the surgery, right? I mean, that's fraught with issues of bias, you know, guessing who is good or bad. So maybe it's not codified on paper. Maybe it is. What goes into these decisions?
1: Yeah, making the decision based on the adopter, that's a really good point, John. That opens up the door to a lot of bias issues. Where are you going to? Judge people, you know, by the value of the car that they drove in, whether whether or not they're responsible enough to spay or neuter a pet. That is really sketchy. However, you can take a look at the population of animals that are at most at risk in your community. You can take a look at the population of animals that enter your shelters at the greatest numbers, and so that is one of the ways you can start to do analysis. I know that uh, for us. We were able to save a lot of small dogs uh, where I was located and uh, doing animal control. Even the, <laughs> the little bitiest, crazy little small dogs, um, there was someone out there that loved bitey, crazy small dogs, including myself. Um, and we could usually get those dogs very easily out to a rescue or even an adopter. But uh, there were Challenges for other sizes of dogs, large dogs in particular, dogs over 35 pounds tend to move slower. And cats uh, at our peak intake at animal control in the city where I was at, we took in around 20,000 cats annually. And so I felt like there was, um, to put it into perspective, if anyone is thinking, so you just don't understand, you just don't know what it's like. Um, when I started at Animal Control in 2005, we actually didn't release animals spayed and neutered. We had a 30 day period of time within which a spay and neuter surgery had to occur. But at the shelter I was at, we actually didn't have spay and neuter resources to provide that spay and neuter for anybody. And uh, so it was this vicious cycle. And I saw the cats who were being returned because they were giving birth. And the reason for return was cat keeps having babies. And I remember crying in the cat room in the maternity room, seeing these moms and babies and knowing that they had made it out and they were back because we didn't have spay neuter. Um, That wasn't happening to us with the dogs in 2005. We had other challenges with dogs, but it wasn't happening with us with dogs. And I remember crying and saying, we need to fix our spay neuter problem and we need to focus on the cats. Now, in my head, I wasn't thinking I'm breaking this up into a priority situation. But if I step back, look at it now at a distance, it was a priority for us to actually provide spay and neuter services to the cats that we adopted out at that time. It might be different now. I doubt it, but it might be. But it really, it wasn't, I wasn't in a hallway crying my eyes out because I was seeing dogs being returned. As a matter of fact, even at that time when we weren't sending out dogs um, that that were sterilized, we were still weren't getting in a lot of puppies like we hardly ever got in a litter of puppies so I, I didn't think through it that way at the time, but looking back, it's really the same way that someone else can make a decision. I think that if I had cried emotionally about every single <laughs> animal, um, we probably, uh, I probably couldn't have prioritized. So I think having that perspective and having that conversation with others in your organization is helpful. Um, if you are feeling very emotional about each and every single animal, can you can you step back and can you take a look at your population? segment it a little bit so that you can go deepest in providing the services where it's going to have the greatest impact and you can have a lighter touch on the providing those services where there's a little less risk for your organization and for the animals that depend on you.
0: Animals are very good at reproducing all animals four legs, hundreds of legs, two legs doesn't matter it's kind of our thing. And I was thinking about the timeline part to this though, meaning the longer an intact animal is intact the greater chance there is of an an unintended litter. There has to be an element of risk management here, right? Knowing the number of variables involved, is there, say, a time period that might make sense to say as long as there will be veterinary capacity in 15
1: days, 30 days, 60 days, Is there value in using a calendar as a guide? Honestly, I don't think there is a timing thing that matters in terms of whether you're setting policy or if you had a law, for example, that we worked under where it was 30 days after the animal was adopted. I don't think that was time was established with anything other than let's pick a number that is reasonable for within which time we think someone could get an appointment and get their animals sterilized. I think that when we think about younger animals, that there is a, a longer period of time before which they can actually become pregnant. And so we ran um, spay-neuter surgeries where we uh, actually gave people money back instead of charging for service, charging for surgeries if they brought their large breed dogs in. Uh, at five months or earlier to actually hopefully get those animals intact. So we could have tried to focus on, hey, let's do pediatric surgery and let's get you in for pediatric surgery. But we knew that that was unrealistic. So we, in our thinking process, we actually stretched that out to five months and gave people a bonus, paid them 20 bucks for bringing in their animal who was intact, who had never had a litter. And so that was one of the strategies that we used to think about timing, which could be something to think about timing. We can also think about. Huh, there's communities right now that actually, even if they put a 30-day, uh, you know, cap on it, it, it's not realistic. There's communities out there that have so very few resources. There's communities out there where they have no vets who actually perform pediatric surgery. And I think that we're speaking from a privileged view to think of that as an ideal that's going to fit a one-size-fits-all. And that's so why I keep going back to every organization and every community should really take a good look at their resources locally and at what animals are the greatest issue in terms of intake and challenges coming into the shelter. And so it's going to be a little different for every community in most communities, but not all, but most cats are still an issue. And so if I was still working in animal control, in a shelter like I had worked at before, I may really double down my spay and neuter resources on cats. Um, we used to joke, our vets would joke, when, in January we're doing cat surgeries, and I would always ask, how, how many are showing up pregnant? And I remember one vet telling me, they're all pregnant, even the males. Like, it was just like, every cat is pregnant. And so the more cats that we could actually spay or neuter, um, we knew that was... You know, it was a drop in the ocean, but it was a drop that we were willing to keep dripping uh, to actually get as many spay and neuter surgeries as we're done. Did we still spay and neuter dogs? Absolutely. Um, Would I rethink how we actually handled our animal flow now looking back uh, with hindsight? I probably would do something a little bit different and I might actually release dogs um, unspayed or unneutered and I might actually utilize other clinics. That um, maybe we could set up appointments for people, uh, set them up for them. You know, assuming that we could work with them to make sure that they could actually make those appointments. Um, So I think I would think through my strategies a lot differently. So that could mean that if you're a shelter where you have external resources for spay and neuter, perhaps you can collaborate with that external partner to actually have them take over um, the spay and neuter responsibilities for the animals that are the least risk for your community. And by risk, I mean, in terms of reproducing, really causing more animals to come back into your shelter or to be out in the community, more animals that will likely be unsterilized or unvaccinated and actually kind of contributing to a problem in your community. Um, And then maybe for your internal spay neuter, Buckle down and spay and neuter every cat that you can get your hands on. <laughs> um, so it'll be a little different for everybody.
0: We can't cover this in a way it needs to be done in the time we have left. Sure. I do know that, but I want to ask about the foundational problem that led us to even having this conversation, which is the veterinary shortage. What are you seeing and hearing out there in terms of what's being done to try to get more resources, more veterinary support, for shelters, for the rescue community. I mean, for all of us, we had a concern about one of our cats medically called our regular vet was like a three month lead time just for a regular checkup. And that's true everywhere. So, you know, are there ways that we're looking at laws that say relate to shelter medicine? Can we allow vet techs, kennel techs even, to do some of the medical stuff to try to lighten that load?
1: Yeah, it's a really complicated question because there was a veterinary shortage that existed prior to COVID. And now the veterinary shortage is not just unique to veterinarians, it's vet techs. It is just animal care staff. It is everybody. Um, And so we're sort of, it's like the perfect storm of just terrible issues for trying to save the lives of animals. Um, I think for veterinarians, there's, again, going to be a unique situation for each community. You know, every state is going to have their own Veterinary Medical Practice Act. I think it's really important for the community and for veterinarians to get together and think, you know, what, what, what are other states doing that we can learn from? What are ways that we can actually allow The veterinary community to be the most impactful in the things that are really have a vet necessary to do? Where can we bring in other options to your point, technicians who are very skilled? Um, There's also even within organizations taking a look at how are you using your veterinarians, your limited veterinaries, most effectively. And so do you have standard protocols that you work with your Your vet, which for some case, it may be the vet of record. You may not even have a vet on staff. um, But how are you establishing those protocols, relying on your vet to say you can do this. This is where I'll need to come in. So, for example, most cases, a veterinarian is going to be the one to need to give that rabies shot. So that veterinarian is giving that rabies shot and you can do all the other things. I wouldn't assign that vet to do those other things. I would make sure that you're using that vet laser focused for the things that really truly need a veterinarian. Right now, uh, especially early on in the days of COVID, we really worked on telemedicine and helping adjust and change laws to allow more veterinary telemedicine. So are you taking advantage of that depending on what's locally available, what allowed in your state? Are you taking advantage of that to the fullest extent possible? Um, there may be opportunities, whether it's your fosters, whether it's your animal care staff or the animals in your facility that you could actually utilize telemedicine in ways that maybe you didn't before, then you aren't even aware that you have these opportunities because the laws have been kind of shifting around a little bit.
0: Sue, I appreciate you. I just want to acknowledge the metal I think it takes to put yourself out there to challenge all of us to think differently, even when that challenge is controversial. Sure, you work for best friends. You're a leader who gets paid to lead. I get all of that. But that doesn't mean it's easy to be that person. I imagine you've had some interesting correspondence in the last few days.
1: I have been a part of crazy ideas in animal welfare. For a long time, and and that was because I really started my journey in no kill at the time when there was not a playbook for no kill. It was prior to Austin becoming that example city that it was. Um, we really had very few communities to look to for ideas, and so a lot of the things that I've worked on over time have really been the struggle of us figuring out ourselves. I look at the resources and the opportunities to. Um, create new programs now, you know, the playbooks that all the best friends teams have developed, the resources that are out there. I'm just amazed at how far animal welfare has come. And some of the things that we all take for granted now in animal welfare, when I first started, people would have the same reaction that they are now to any of these new ideas, like putting animals in foster homes. We only reserve that for like the most trustworthy, volunteers and we have five of them and <laughs> we'd taken 4,000 animals. And so we would at that time euthanize animals because we didn't have foster homes, but we were also afraid to ask people to foster. And so it's so different now. Um, the ideas that are coming up now, I think in a couple of years, years, the, if they're bad ideas, they're not going to be around. And if they're great ideas, we're all going to be doing them.
0: So to bring this full circle and close this out, Every day in your community, even if your shelter is closing in on the 90% no kill benchmark or even above it, there are people in that shelter who still have to make life and death decisions. To say that I don't envy that is a massive understatement. uh, And I just hope I can do what I can, anything to support them so they don't have to make those decisions anymore. So whether we're in a pandemic or an endemic or no demic, You know, how can we be there for each other to support the pets and people in our communities who need help?
1: The reason, John, that I actually went to work in an animal control shelter uh, was because like so many people who probably listen to this podcast, I wanted things to change. I wanted to save more lives. And I realized that I could do that as an advocate in the community. I could continue to work in a smaller shelter that was a limited admission shelter. And we really could choose the animals that we wanted to bring in. I could form my own rescue. But I did decide to go work in animal control and make change from within. And so if anyone is listening to this and really wants to make change and think that that is something that they could do, it's not for everybody, At times I wasn't sure if it was for me, but I stuck it out and I ended up loving it. Taking that bold step and actually stepping up and going in and being that person who is making these tough choices and really thinking through how to save more lives in such a challenging environment. um, I salute every single person who has done that. And I encourage every single person who wants to, to go in and try to make that difference.
0: I'd like to thank Tawny Hammond, Bethany Hines, Kayla Sebo, Whitney Blighton, and Mark Peralta for being part of the team that helps bring this podcast together each week. My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.